Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of HR Tech Chat. Um, and I am uh, very happy to have with us today, Caitlin McGregor, who is CEO and co-founder of Plum. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, so am I. Uh, we have had many conversations around just artificial intelligence, psychometrics, where we've been, where we are today, where we want to go in the future, um, the, uh, that, uh, the future of work that we keep hearing about. And uh, in my opinion, psychometrics are just absolutely critical, the, the sort of the latest modern ones. And, and I think it's an area um, that hasn't necessarily been uh, covered as well as it could be. And, uh, and I don't pretend to be an expert in it, but I'm learning a lot from folks like you. Um, and, and we were actually uh, discussing this a little bit earlier, uh, but a really interesting way, I think, to start this discussion um, around what Plum does and where we are right now in the, the state of the, uh, of the work, of, of the, the world of work, right? We have, we're looking in the rear view mirror and we're, and we're looking forward and, and we have some things to think about. Um, you, you said it more eloquently than I did just now. Um, do, do you wanna share? Yeah, so what we find is that, you know, where we are in 2021 is that most of our approaches and most of the technology that's being leveraged, it really is leaving people in a place where they're looking in the rear view mirror. They're looking at, you know, past experience, past education. They're looking at, you know, hard skills that are scraped from resumes and cover letters and, you know, doing keyword searches that match up with job descriptions. And they're looking at all this historical data, looking effectively in the rearview mirror, trying to understand where we're going moving forward. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that kind of historical data that focuses on those hard skills and past experience, well, it's embedded with the systemic barriers and biases that dictate access to education, mm -hmm. access to internships, even how fast somebody progresses in their career. And when we look at the field of industrial organizational psychology, you know, we have decades now of proven science that has shown that when you take Betty, who was a top performer at one company, and drop her into a new company, she's not automatically going to be a top performer because the job and the manager and the customer and the product and all of these variables are have changed. And so really, if you want to be able to predict if Betty's going to be a successful top performer again, is looking at those innate talents, the things that are uniquely human, those human skills about Betty, things like her ability to be persuasive or to communicate well or execute or innovate. And industrial organizational psychology actually can quantify those. Yeah. And yet, you know, because of, you know, the legacy ways of doing it or the fact that it's been trapped with consultants, you know, the psychometric data has been left out of the equation. And it doesn't have to be anymore. And it really is the key to unlocking the potential of your existing employees, of the workforce, and really revolutionizing uh, how we quantify, identify, and optimize potential. So, so, so a few things there. Uh, one thing you said that was very interesting. Uh, to, well, if you think about it, it's, it's, 
it's funny at first blush to think, oh, we can quantify soft skills. That's that. That's a, somebody sort of on the outside looking in or just kind of uh, strolling, sort of stumbling into this conversation might be, well, what are we talking about? You know, soft, and, and then even, even worse, or um, worse might not be the right word here, but think, oh, soft skills, oh, pff, come on, please. You know, there's that attitude out there, and and, um, and I think we're getting beyond it. But but it but it's still there. Um, a, B, you brought up a really interesting. Um, well, th but this stuck out to me uh, for me. So, uh, the the persona, the the person that you, <laughs> the uh, Betty. So the, <laughs> Betty, yes, Betty, yes. See, so we can't take. She's a great performer in one organization. We can't just kind of take her and drop her into the next organization. Expect the same great things to happen. I mean, it could. You know, there's. I mean, you you take a bad performer, somebody who has a history of like a like a track record of being a bad performer, may very well be a bad performer next. Um, good performer very may very well be a good performer next but it's not a um it's not a uh, sort of a, a foregone conclusion and and i think implicit in that thinking or in, uh, just kind of uh i would say intrinsic to that thinking too is this idea that that the human being the person that one person is the defining like uh is the factor right that is the it's like you said there are all these factors it's a, it's a kaleidoscope of it's one of my favorite words kaleidoscope of variables there that is different in the new organization versus the old and so and so what it sounds like you're saying is and and um in fact i'm almost certain this is what you're saying and i agree with it wholeheartedly is that soft skills if you want to determine whether someone is going to be what kind of factor the person is going to be in the new environment? Look at their soft skills more than their hard skills. Yeah, I mean, all of us that have been listening to all the research around the future of work for the last five years, it all keeps talking about how work is changing at an accelerated pace that, you know, we're hearing from our customers, enterprise customers, that jobs are changing as quickly as every six months. So if the hard skill requirements and the type of activities that you're going to have somebody doing, you know, if we're saying that, hey, the reason why Betty's not necessarily going to be successful in the new job is because of all of those things that have changed outside of her control, we're saying, you know, that even within a job, that's going to keep happening. So what we want to understand is, are we setting up this person for success? Are we going to leverage what makes them exceptional compared to their peers? Or are we gonna put them in a situation where the things that they're asked to do day in and day out actually are areas that they take longer to do and they get less fulfillment from and you know, it's very draining. We see this through the lens of every single person has certain talents, things like innovation, communication, execution that drive them and give them a sense of self-worth and allow them to perform at a, a consistently a higher level than their peers if they are set up for a situation that leverages those any talents. On the flip side, if the vast majority of the day they're asked to do things that drain them, mm -hmm. then they're gonna constantly underperform and they're gonna end up burning out and leaving the organization. And so really we're talking about getting to the detail understanding of it doesn't matter if somebody is 
doing, we have tons of different examples, but you know, we, we talk about Maya who had been underwriter for six years, constantly a top performer and amazing, um, somebody who is constantly shown as saying she has high potential. But after six years, she was completely burnt out and ready to leave the organization. But after she completed her 25 minute plum profile, they were able to compare her to what behaviors were needed in the organization for different roles. They thought, mm. hey, let's promote her to be director of underwriting. We want to retain her. She was only a 63 match out of 100. There was 37% of the population that would be more driven and excel as a director of underwriting. But we were able to show that she was a 94 match for product management. Right. And it's not that she was an expert in product management. She didn't have the eligibility or the readiness for product management. But within four months, by after hiring her internally for product management, she was able to learn about product management. She was able to job shadow, take courses, read books, watch YouTube videos and, and TED Talks. And at the six month mark, she was outperforming product managers with 15 years of prior product management experience. And at the one year mark, the other product manager that had been hired in with all that experience burnt out and left. And she was promoted to be senior product management. So there's nothing about that past experience. It's all about, could she adopt, adapt and thrive because she was being her innate talents that drive her were being leveraged, utilized. No. So <laughs> you get me really excited here because one thing is really interesting here is that, I mean, what kind of a hiring manager would ever have intuited that? Like just been like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That person, that's the person that's going to succeed uh, the best or the most, excuse me, in this particular role. <laughs> Come on, we had we had our uh, Global Executive Advisory Council um, fall virtual roundtable. That's a real mouthful, sorry, <laughs> but we had it a couple weeks ago, and uh, we had a uh, we got into a conversation. We, we just discussed a bunch of bunch of table topics uh, that members of the council were interested in uh, discussing, and one of we we kind of we meandered into psychometrics and AI and all this kind of stuff. And and we'll say in the psychometrics for now. But there was another example. It was the same thing. Uh, there was a fellow on our on our council that's that's in this line of work, and uh, they were looking to fill debt collector positions. <laughs> and it turned out that they did like a whole profile for uh, for culture fit and all this kind of stuff and and who would actually enjoy and be good at being a debt collector um that i mean that's a tough role to hire for right you need to well it turned out that they found out that the best the, the, the persona was um, and I think I'm mangling this a little bit, so I'm not getting this exactly right, but it was something along the lines of somebody who'd worked in sort of a, uh, uh, like a, like an intense sort of daycare and child daycare environment, <laughs> or it was either that or, um, or, uh, former stay at home mothers that had many children, like something about that was somehow transferable to the debt collecting role, which is, you know, it's kind of funny, you know, to think about that uh, in a way. But and I had the same reaction. I said, "Who? What kind of a hiring manager would ever have figured that out on their own?" And yet, those are the soft skills that are going to. I mean, those are the. It's it's funny. The soft skills are the roles that people with this particular soft skills previously had that are going to work where you where you want them next. And the other thing I just want to get out here is this idea that, you know. 
soft skills that you, you mentioned retention and all this kind of stuff, right? I mean, those are that's 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 hard dollars kind of stuff. And 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 again, you are so an organization might kind of scoff at the maybe. I, I might be over exaggerating this a little bit, but I think I think there is an attitude out there. Say, oh no, soft skills, no, no, no. We got to look for A, B, and C. You know, we need somebody who can code. We need somebody who has an MBA. This sort of stuff, right? And but you're actually going to. And, and I think the attitude behind that is we need to do. We need to hire for stuff where we know they're going to be able to produce and they're going to stay. And this is the kind of role they're for and all this kind of stuff. But if you really want to affect those, you know, the, the the bottom line to protect your your you know your 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 finances as an organization, you want to you want to look at the soft stuff. Well, even when it comes to developers, do you want developers that write meticulously clean code without errors because you're delivering enterprise-grade solutions? Or are you creating rapid MVPs and you want people to just be able to get something quick and dirty up? Do you have an integrated development approach where your developers are working hand in hand with design and product and therefore communication skills are critical? Are you doing paraprogramming where teamwork working together is critical? So, you know, you can have people that can write code, but are there flaws in the code? Does it is it draining on them? Or what other things are you going to have to rely on? Uh, being able to understand right up front, you know, you line up a hundred people that look identical on paper and knowing which people are going to excel in the role, excel, like really thrive long-term, <clears throat> that's, you, you can't get at it any other way than psychometric data. And then the other part too is, is there's other elements where you need psychometric data to understand. And one of those areas is leadership. Understanding what makes somebody a successful leader, regardless of industry, regardless of all these other factors, but being a, a successful leader long-term in their career, there are foundational dimensions of leadership that are psychometric, the same 25 minute assessment that Maya took, we can layer on a leadership dimension framework and understand, you know, does she have learning agility? Does she have drive? Does she have presence? Does she have these six dimensions that predict leadership long-term? Mm -hmm. And the value of that is that a lot of the times when we evaluate leaders, we're waiting until they're already in a leadership role and we look at observed behavior and you subjectively say, I think this person, you know, has potential or doesn't have potential doing some form of talent review that is subjective based on who they're reporting into potentially a 360 of giving the valuation, but it's always based on the observed behavior. And what happens is that if somebody is a top performer in the role that they're doing, so they're executing well, they are more likely to be said that they have potential, but it actually has nothing to do with their leadership potential. It's how they're performing as an individual contributor often. Right. So what happens is that if you're looking at junior talent, if you're looking at talent that is the most diverse in your organization, which is on the earlier rungs of the organization, there isn't yet observable leadership qualities to be able to measure against. And so to understand in the first few years of somebody's career, if they're more likely to be invested in putting them on a managerial track, or if it's better to invest in them on the expert track of becoming the best of the best subject matter expert, you don't have any data 
You can't look at past experience to say who's going to be your future, you know, best leaders, who's going to perform best on a managerial track versus who will be the best of the best expert in potentially being an expert developer or an expert in, in product management or an expert in, in an ops role. And so it's really fascinating that you just don't have that other, those other data points at that time. Well, this is really interesting because, uh, you know, there's the sort of the, the old trope that a lot of people get sort of, um, you know, promoted into managerial roles and they're just not, they're not cut out. They're just not the right kind of person to be a manager. I mean, you can learn some aspects of leadership, right? And you be, you can become better at that, but, but there are some folks that kind of just have the innate um, uh, psychological, psychological makeup for that. And, and there's, you're not going to hire well for managerial roles by looking at how well somebody performed and in, in the, you know, up to that point, it's, you know, sales is a great example. There could be, I've, I've heard this many times from many salespeople in various scenario uh, circumstances I've been over the course of my career where, you know, somebody was a great sales, like a really, really good salesperson. They got promoted into, you know, like a director of sales or VP of sales and was all of a sudden, you know, in, in charge of, of managing a team of salespeople and no longer really doing uh, like soup to nut sales themselves. And, and, and they weren't necessarily, in fact, more often than not, just weren't effective in the sales manager, sales leadership position. So if yeah. Back, if we take it back to the concept of what drives and drains you, you know, as a manager, your goal is to support other people, to unblock them so that they can be effective. You know, your to-do list is not important. It's about how you empower and support these other people. Well, day in and day out, not accomplishing your own tasks and just constantly supporting people can be incredibly exhausting for some people. Mm -hmm. It can be a nightmare. They just want to go and get their work done. For other people, you know, supporting people gives them a sense of self-worth and they're really excited. But that means that maybe that to-do list was less important, which means when they are in an individual contributor role and it's all about their own to-do list, they actually might be coming up as just average performers. Yeah. It's amazing how many average performers are actually incredible future leaders because yeah. they're, no, they're not given the opportunity yet to be in that facilitator supportive role. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, you know, we often as society value leaders. We think, oh, you know, if I'm going to identify the top 10% or the top 25% of future leaders, you know, I'm, I'm screening people out and, and it's more this elitist thing. And it's actually more twofold. One is we need to embrace that there are two tracks and, and they are equal and amazing opportunities. And how do we change our companies to value that expert track versus that managerial track, but also see this as ability to screen people in that are often missed. The way yeah. we identify future leaders is embedded with enormous amounts of bias. And this is a way of bringing objective data in to screen in people you may have missed to calibrate your talent review process. This is only one da data point but it brings you that objective lens and just put people on the right track where they're going to be set up for success long-term. Yeah. And if they're successful at your company and they're thriving, they're more likely to stay. Yeah. And, and you mentioned earlier, and I, I meant to say this in response and reaction, because I think it's, it's a great point that you made, you know, that you want people doing the work that they, they feel most valuable 
in like they feel like they're delivering the most value and i think you know the corollary to that is they 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 enjoy it the most or they they feel they maybe if they whether they enjoy it is one thing but they derive the most satisfaction from delivering it too you know maybe you know you don't enjoy every single minute of your day even if it's stuff you like you know sometimes you just want to take a break but at the end of the day it's like you, you derive the most ass you feel you look back on it and you say yeah i feel good about that i feel like i knew what i was doing and i was good at it and i feel like i'm a value of the organization well if you're talking about valuing people you know in terms of you know quantifying that in the term in, in in the form of comp compensation even right you want them to be doing what they feel most valuable doing and so that's going to there's going to be i think some just sort of natural alignment with uh with compensation strategy too the other thing is complete uh, kind of unrelated to that but but i want to go back to this leadership thing um how do we know what's a good like a priori what what a good leader is like how do we know that what what, what have we learned in the past yeah. many many years about that we we know that often leaders are selected based on what current the bench of leaders looks like so if you have you know leaders that are very boisterous and you know, very dominant and, you know, very assertive with the direction that they want, then we assume that that is what leaders need to look like in that organization to be successful. So we do an enormous amount of pattern recognition of whatever the leadership bench looks like today, then that it's a mirror of that. But we have a lot of organizations that are kind of having their moments where they're like, wait a second, five years from now, is that really what we want our leadership to be? And our leaders look one way. Do we really want leaders to look as homogeneous as they are today, or do we want to have more diversity in those leaders moving forward? So a lot of organizations are recognizing that what leadership looks like today is not what they aspire to be, you know, down down the road. So how do you how do you look for that? So we constantly come back to industrial organizational psychology. It really is a science that has been well validated over decades and decades of research looking across the globe as to what do successful leaders have in common. Mm -hmm. And it's been boiled down to, a, to a, a very crystal understanding of common uh, talent dimensions. Now, different companies like Deloitte and things like that have come up with different names of it, but there's a very large degree of consensus. In our case, we, we've called them learning agility and presence and, um, you know, there's, there's six of them in total that we go through. And those are a combination of looking at the whole person. What are those pieces that line up to being successful long-term as, um, as a leader? And all we're doing is looking at every single person, the same 25 minute assessment that they already took, you know, either because they were applying for a job or they're an employee and we were supporting them with the <clears throat> professional development or we're helping them with an internal mobility opportunity that we're just layering on a framework to their existing universal assessment and we're able to surface you know and you can be in the top you know we do it on a scale of four diamonds uh you can be in the top 10 percent have four diamonds but your mixture may may be different compared to somebody else there may be certain elements that within that you're you know you soar with but even if you're in the top 10 percent, there's certain areas that you struggle with mm -hmm. um and it really brings that self-awareness in the leadership context in terms of where there may be a, a friction point 
versus where you could be leaning into even more and embracing and, and setting yourself up for, for instances where you get to utilize that even more. So basically the, the long answer to it, what I could have been short answer is there's science behind this. There's research yeah. and validation and consistency. We are not reinventing the wheel. What we're doing is finding a way to give an, a positive employee experience where they're getting benefit from their own insights around their own development guide and opportunities for internal mobility and development and things like that, providing objective data that's going to screen people in that are often missed mm -hmm. and finding a way to make this scale so that it's effortless to continually get more and more value from the same data set. What's mm -hmm. new is how we're applying it with technology, but the science has been very consistent and clear for the last few decades. Interesting. That's, I mean, that's important. I, I guess I have a question now. Uh, this might be a good point, um, a good segue to the idea of artificial intelligence, because I think that's, you know, it's it's really infiltrating. It's starting to infiltrate external in, and internal hiring. Uh, we've been speaking with all sorts of vendors that offer some sort of solution along that continuum, right? And I think it's very important. You know, I think it's going to help. It's, we've spoken with folks that help you sort of, you know, understand what's in your ATS, which could be like just a massive trove of information, just, you know, impossible for recruiters to just kind of sift through, you know, you need AI to do that. And, and, um, and we, I'm just curious, what's your, uh, if you have an opinion on, on artificial intelligence when it comes to internal and external hiring, how it should fit. And, and, I'm, and I'm also interested in how your, your, your view on how psychometric information should be a part of that. Yeah. If we go back to you know, past experience, past education, and we look at industrial organizational psychology, it's consistent that that experience, that data set of past experience and education, the validity of it predicting future performance is less than flipping a coin. Like yeah. it really isn't predictive of long-term success. So it's not that that data isn't valuable. It helps you understand eligibility. It helps you understand readiness. It helps you understand geography of where, you know, somebody lives. If you need them in the office, there is valuable data, but yeah. You know, with reference checks, for example, we don't do reference checks on every single person at the beginning of the funnel. We yeah. wait until it is appropriate to bring that data in. And what I worry about is that because it was something that we could quantify when things like soft skills felt like we couldn't quantify it, yeah. I feel like we may have over-rotated in terms of how we are using it. And yeah. um, I think it's important, but are we talking about eligibility or are we talking about performance? Are we talking about identifying potential and who is gonna be set up to thrive? Or are we talking about, can they hit the ground running day one? And so it's all this data is important, but how you order the workflow, how you order kind of those stage gates of decision-making, I think is what needs to change in our industry. The data I'm talking about measuring people's innate talents, it is four times more accurate at predicting on the job success. So That's, we should be starting with that and bringing in the other data after we've shortlisted on the people that are most likely to set up, be set up for success. You know, you know I, sorry, I, interrupted, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, sorry. But, no, but, no. but 
you really struck a chord uh, when you said eligibility. I think you said eligibility versus potential. Um, that that I mean that really, honestly, I think that just cuts to the crux of that cuts to the gets to the crux of it, right? We're looking at you know conventional the conventional approach to uh, assessing whether somebody is um, is a good candidate to interview for a job. <laughs> and interviewing is a whole other area that it's a rabbit hole. Maybe we won't go down today, but, but, but in any event, the decision whether to consider somebody for the role, um, conventionally, we've, 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 we've looked at eligibility. And, 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 may, and maybe we've looked at past performance, you know, as, as it is portrayed by the as a person self-presented in their CV and in, and in an interview and all this, and maybe speaking to references. Um, but, but we haven't looked at, so that's, a, to me, that's a, another level, not necessarily just eligibility, right? But we haven't looked at, we haven't really looked at like we should, first and foremost, like you said, um, innate capability, like, like potential, which, which is the potential. That is the potential. And I think there's two ways of looking at it. We traditionally look at psychometrics assessment uh, in the talent acquisition side of things, you know, being able to screen in people, uh, being able to help with that shortlisting um, when you often when you have high volume of applicants, that that's what the industry is more familiar with. Mm. But what we're seeing now, especially with the great resignation, is why are people leaving? They're leaving because they're not fulfilled. They're not thriving in work. They're not having that sense of self-worth and, and feeling like they're, you know, at the end of every day going, that was the best day ever. I got to really be a superhero today. And I executed on these things that really make me feel amazing. Yeah. They're feeling burnt out because they're not feeling like they're in an opportunity to thrive. And so when we think about the great resignation, we should be thinking about how do we truly recognize the humans that work in our organization and how do we optimize for their potential? How do we give them opportunities inside the organization to keep growing and developing and thriving? And so this psychometric data has typically not been used other than very siloed use cases in talent management. And I think that's the biggest opportunity in front of us is using psychometric data through the entire life cycle. If you like one of our banks, they're hiring 5,000 people a year. Well, you're, you're saying to the applicant, hey, I want to bring you in because I want to know the whole you. I want to know, you know how, to, how to really leverage you. Well, once they become that employee, use that data to then help them onboard. Use that data to help them with professional de development. Use that data to help them move into new roles and to identify what track they should be on. And if you, if you didn't hire them that way, use it on your existing employees and help this data enrich how you can personalize the experience for them and really nurture them. And you are going to have, again, if we go back to AI, you're going to have a lot of people with the same keywords, the same yeah. background. And you <clears throat> talk about really understanding them and what drives and drains them. And that's where we have to go into including this additional data set that frankly people couldn't access before because it didn't scale. It didn't provide a good uh, yeah. employee experience. So it's, it's understandable that we weren't doing anything before with it, but now is the time 
where we have access to this data and can include it to really change our relationship with our employees. Well, from what I understand, um, so a few things from, from, what, from what I understand, the psychometric instruments that we available to us today are much more accurate and, um, and, um, and targeted um, and, and reflective of people's actual innate capabilities and like the old ones. I, what I've been telling people uh, this year after kind of talking with folks like you is that, you know, this isn't your father's MBTI or whatever it is, you know. Um, exactly, um, it's like a flip phone, you know, it's no yeah. longer a flip phone from 30 years ago. We now have smartphones. We have gone through massive evolutions of how we can, you know, really take this data out of the hands of the consultants and really expensive one-off catalog assessments and really democratize access to this highly predictive data with a fantastic user experience where it's a win-win. It's not a black box. This data really allows people to be the CEOs of their own careers and empower them to optimize themselves just as much as providing the data to the company so that they can be part of the process and have the right conversations and make the right investments in their people. Well, I think I think you're right about democratizing access to this to this uh, highly powerful information, and and I just want to go back to AI again for a minute here because what I'm seeing is that <clears throat> we have a lot of very highly capable, sophisticated uh, solutions that are that are accessing that that eligibility level data and maybe that past performance level data, but not this the that sort of innate psychomet that psychometric data on the person's innate potential, and and to me that, I mean to me that that's really worrisome, uh, from from a from a uh, you know just a, an industrial you know like, who's I say for, for the market space for for uh, for the world for, yeah worrisome for the world of work for the future of work the uh, not too distant future of work right because I think that we if. if it would be, I think it would be a, um, in my opinion, um, a colossal catastrophe for, for AI to kind of, for, for, to leave the station, for the train to leave the station. And for this, this type of information, which is the most predictive and useful, I am convinced of it, um, not to get in there soon enough, right? I, I, so I honestly, I think we're at a critical time in the in the profession of HCM in the world of work in general for this i i couldn't agree more and yeah. you know we know realistically that the holy grail is you want as many different data points as possible it's just right now you know getting this data in there and prioritized properly isn't the main priority you know companies that control the algorithms want the easily accessible data that they can scrape. That's, you know, so it's gonna take some time, but I think it's gonna be customers that are gonna say, hey, you know, we wanna also bring in this data source and we wanna prioritize the weighting of this data source. We wanna use this first to focus on who has the greatest potential and then use the other data as the supplement. And, and I think that, you know, it's educating people in the industry first that, this, that there is more predictive data than what's being harnessed and then figuring out how to, combine it in the proper way with the rest of the data sources. Uh, the more data, the better. It's just, this is the objective, predictive data and it, it's game changing. And it's really about getting that message out there. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, the, the great resignation uh, is a huge opportunity for this. You know, if, if you're an organization that wants to retain your people, you want to uh, be able to innovate in the future uh, by having that top talent, uh, you're not going to get there with, um, I'm going to keep using this sort of using the parlance of the lexicon of eligibility data, uh, perform, past performance data. You're not going to get there with that. You know, it's better than nothing, but it's definitely not going to keep you competitive in the, in the, the, um, the that, that old term, the war for talent, which is, uh, it, it's really become a very hot war, I think, right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic discussion. A fantastic discussion. Um, so many really interesting things happening in this field. Um, have we missed anything? Anything, uh, any parting words or uh, anything else you'd like to cover? No, I think this was great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. The, the pleasure is all, all ours, Caitlin. Thank you very much.